Good morning, Summit Church. If you happen to be joining us today for the first time, I think I speak for all of us who are part of the church body here when I say glad to have you with us. Uh, my name is Michael Descoli. I'm the senior pastor here. And we like our guests to know that we use a good part of our Sunday mornings to teach the Bible one book at a time. And this is how we are coming to a conclusion today of the book of Ephesians. So please turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6, and we will be starting with verse 10. Now, in Ephesians chapters 1 through 3, we talked about where we sit positionally in Christ. And if the book of Ephesians should do anything for us, it should help us to understand who we are in Christ. We are the very sons of God. And as the sons of God, God has given us his signet ring, meaning that we are able to act on God's part, act as if God himself were acting. He has put at our disposal all of his kingdom resources, all of his kingdom power, all of his kingdom love, and all of his kingdom promises. We must now learn how to walk in that. Then we came to Ephesians chapter 4 through chapter 6 verse 9, where we move from where we sit positionally with Christ to how we should now walk with Christ. It's about our surrendered wills combined with God's kingdom power. You see, in Christ, we each have a unique calling on our lives. You are no longer your own. You have been set apart for God's sacred purposes. And we need to get over this business that says or suggests that there's a highest calling. And unless you're in the pastorate or in missions, you're not experiencing the highest calling. That's not true. If you're in Christ, the highest calling is placed on your life as well, no matter where you go or what you do. Largely, this is about growing in love for others, sharing the same kind of love for others that Christ has extended to you. So then we move from where we sit and how we should walk to how we should now stand with Christ. And we got there last week in Ephesians chapter 6, starting with verse 10 and taking us to verse 24. And this is the point of the entire book. It begins with the word finally, which means in conclusion, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. This is about putting on Christ. This is about putting on truth as our battle armor so that we can participate with God in advancing his kingdom and opposing the lies of the devil. Listen, I'm sick and tired of the devil oppressing and destroying lives. I'm tired of the devil's lies. I'm tired of the devil and what he's doing. And it's time for us, the church, to stand up and begin exercising in the authority that God has given us over him. The devil has nothing on us. Jesus is truth and Jesus is our armor. So what I'd like to do, I'd like to go back to where we were last week, to verse 10 of Ephesians chapter 6, and just walk through it once more, and then let it take us to the conclusion that God has for us today. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. I want to emphasize that word in. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Would you say that with me? Be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. This is about getting clothed in righteousness, 
getting clothed in Jesus, getting clothed in, in righteousness. So we're putting the armor on, and in putting the armor on, we are putting on Christ. So verse 11 goes on. Put on the full armor of God, not just part of it, but the full armor of God, so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Listen, the devil is a, a liar. He's an accuser. He's a slanderer. He, he's a destroyer. And we oppose him by getting clothed in Christ. Verse 12, this is the reality. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, and now it repeats, put on the full armor of God. Why? So that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand, period. And you better believe that there are waves and periods of time where evil accelerates, and we wonder, we wonder sometimes, if the end of the world were to come, were to come would we be able to stand strong for Christ? And Paul prepares us for this by saying, make sure you put the armor on and you keep it on. So now we're going to read through the armor again. Jesus, the truth. Here we go. Stand firm then, firm then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So I'm tired of the devil lying to people. I'm tired of the devil especially lying to God's people. And the application here, it's time we clothe ourselves with truth. It's time we clothe ourselves with Jesus. Satan is a liar. Satan is an accuser. Satan is a taskmaster. Satan is a destroyer. He wants to get your eyes off Jesus so he can convince you that you are pathetic, that you're broken, that you're flawed, that you're unlovable, that you're inadequate, and we can go on and on. But my friends, none of these things are true of you in Christ. In fact, God says you have great value. Do you realize that something is as valuable as someone is willing to pay for it? Take, for example, this uh, most expensive car in the world. It's the Bugatti Veyron Supersport. $2,400,000. Tell me, how in the world can a car be worth that much? Well, I'll tell you, because someone is willing to pay the price for it. I was talking to my nephew yesterday he knows all about this car and he wanted me to know that you have to buy the tires from Bugatti uh, themselves which is a branch of Volkswagen and one set of tires for this car cost $38,000 you've got to be kidding me uh, and I asked him how many of these cars sold each year and he said well several hundred <laughs> who can do that how in the world can a car be worth that much well someone's willing to pay the price for it the most expensive baseball card, and whenever I get on the subject, I love to point to the 1909 Honus Wagner. It sold for 
$800,000. Now, which would you rather have, the sports car or the card? <laughs> the card, can you believe it, sold for $400,000 more than the car. How in the world can a baseball card be worth so much? Well, I'll tell you, because someone is willing to pay that kind of price for it. Well, let me tell you the price that God has paid for you. In fact, read it with me. This is Romans chapter 5, verse 8. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now think about this. How many Honus Wagner baseball cards have been thrown away or destroyed over the years simply because someone didn't realize their potential value? <laughs> you know, a parent or a grandparent or someone's cleaning out a drawer or, or a, an attic and they see a box of cards and they throw it in the trash. And if you ask any baseball card collector why his cards are worth so much, he'll tell you it's because of all the cards that someone once had, but they threw away. That baseball card collector will tell you how he loves to hear stories, how he loves to hear people talk about the cards they used to have because that's what makes their cards so valuable. Well, guess what? Satan wants to convince you that you are worthless and disposable, but the truth is someone value, values you greatly. God is willing and was willing to pay the ultimate price for you. So put on the armor of God, put in truth, in order to participate in advancing the kingdom, the kingdom of love, the kingdom of light, the kingdom of good news, and stand against the devil's lies. But not only does the devil want to get you questioning your worth, he wants to get you doubting the one who values you. He wants to get you doubting God. He wants to get you doubting whether or not God really has your best interests in mind. Satan wants to convince you that there's more than one bidder who wants you. But the truth is you only have one legitimate bidder. Jesus said, the thief comes, the false bidder, only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come, Jesus, the true bidder, that they may have life and have it to the full. Friend, God is your source of life. Death, in the scriptural sense, is to be forever separated from God. And Satan's objective is to steal you away from God, who is your source of life, resulting in your death and destruction. We see this when Satan tempted Eve. Uh, the woman in the garden, he said to her, this is Genesis 3.1, did God really say, see the questioning of God, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Well, God only told them they, they couldn't eat of one tree, and Satan says by saying you, you can't eat of one tree, you might as well say you can't eat of any tree, and that's what he puts on this woman. So in verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. Well, God didn't say they couldn't touch it. That's a picture of human effort. I mean, God says, don't eat the tree. And so then we decide how we're going to, you know, obey God in our own strength. So we tell ourselves, don't even go near the tree. Well, that's a setup for failure. The only way you're going to obey God is by putting your hope and trust in God. It's a walk of faith. <laughs> so we see the woman has a chink in her armor. Verse 4, the devil says, you will not surely die. My friend, God cannot tell a lie. And the devil suggesting that God has lied to her. 
And the reason God lied? Verse 5, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Let me get one thing straight here. I don't want to be like God in the sense I don't want to ascend his throne. I want to be like God in the sense that I want to be holy, but I want to let God be God, and I want to be God's creation. Well, the woman gave in, and the rebellion was tragic. We see the result in chapter 3 of Genesis, verse 23. So the Lord God banished him, male and female, man, from the garden. And consequently, they are now denied access to the tree of life. Man traded the tree of life for the tree of knowledge. And we are still doing that today. The argument is always that we as human beings are strong enough and we're smart enough. Who needs these fairy tales about God? We can do it ourselves. And the application, oh my friend, put on the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, put on the shoes that are the gospel of peace, take up the helmet of salvation, the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Amen. Verse 18, And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Now, prayer isn't listed here as being another weapon. Let's get that straight. Prayer is the means by which we engage ourselves in the battle. The armor is our artillery for doing battle in prayer, and prayer is where we play our part in advancing the kingdom. The reason it works this way, the reason prayer works this way, is because God, because it's all about God's glory. Prayer is primarily about us being properly connected with God. And about prayer, John Bunyan, author of Pilgrim's Progress, once said, I'd rather have a heart without words than words without a heart. So when we come to God, we may not always know what to say. I mean, it's always good to give God thanks and praise, get our mind off our troubles and onto what God has done and who God has done. But prayer is more about sitting at the feet of Jesus in order that we may know him and know his heart. And so that application that is the one application that we want to be about as a church is what? All lies on Jesus. Where is the power? The power is in prayer. You know, in Acts chapter 12, after the first major persecution of the church broke out, Peter's sitting in jail. What's the church doing? They're having a prayer meeting. Well, an angel then appears to Peter and leads him to freedom. In fact, leads him right to the prayer meeting so that Peter's knocking on the door at the prayer meeting and those inside had a hard time believing it could possibly be Peter. <laughs> Why do we pray? Do we pray believing? And we see right here an illustration. It can't be Peter. He's in jail. No, your prayer worked. <laughs> in Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas are in prison. They're, preaching, they're, they're in prison for preaching Christ. And uh, what they did was about midnight, they're worshiping and they're praying when suddenly there was this incredible earthquake, a miraculous earthquake that blew open the doors to the prison. 
caused the shackles on their hands and feet to fall off. And the next thing you know, one of the soldiers is falling at Paul's feet, asking him what he must do to be saved. Prayer. That's where the power is. In 1 Timothy 2, Paul says, I urge then first of all. Does that sound like priority to you? <laughs> it does to me. I urge then first of all that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone. Can we be honest? Prayer isn't the priority of the church today. I mean, maybe it's preaching, maybe it's worship, maybe it's program or, or a building. I'm not even sure prayer would be listed as number five. And if God is true to his word, and God says things like, call to me, and to read that in context, would you call to me in your hour of trouble, and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things which you do not know, wouldn't you think that prayer would be our priority? If the devil is a thief and a liar, could he have convinced the church that prayer isn't that big of a deal so we don't participate in prayer? And the application here is that we must become more of people of prayer. It's our part in the battle. And it's for this reason that this week I'm calling our church, Summit Church, to a week of prayer and fasting for two major purposes. One, because we need to know God better. We need to know His heart. We need to know Him personally. We need to see where He's working. We need to join Him there. I'm just amazed how this has been working in my life. Uh, thinking about a couple that I'm asking God, show me where you're working. And a couple shows up for premarital counseling asking me to share with them how they can have Christ at the center of their lives and the center of their marriage. The next time they showed up for the second session, they want to know how they could grow in their new faith. And they're going to be baptized tonight. I hope you'll come and cheer them on. Wow. Even Jesus, you know, didn't do anything on his own volition. He said, I tell you the truth. The son can do nothing by himself. He can't do anything on his own volition. He can only do what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son does also. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. So the pri priority of prayer is to really know God because it's all about God's glory. So it's about sitting at his feet and letting him put into us. But we also need to intercede for others, rescuing them from the lies and horrors of sin, the flesh, and the devil. So won't you join me this week for a time of prayer and fasting? I know the word fasting is intimidating, but find the website listed there in your bulletin. You can go to our website and find the link that will take you there. And then consider at what level you'll participate. I'd encourage you to join us each weeknight as much as possible to join us for a prayer time at the Blooms. Well, I want to come back to this before we close, but I need to work through the rest of the passage. So notice in verse 18, he calls us to pray for all the saints. Listen, if the devil will lie to you, you can be sure he will lie to the believer sitting next to you. Pray for them the same way you wish somebody would pray for you. In verse 19, Paul says, Pray also for me, that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me, so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. That word fearlessly listed twice there is the word bold. If Paul was anything, he was, in, he was bold. I mean, he's in prison for his boldness, but his prayer is to be all the bolder. Wouldn't you think if he were in jail that he would be asking them to pray that he be set free. Instead, he's praying that he can be the best kingdom representative he could possibly be right there in prison. 
Paul may be chained on the outside, but he's a free man on the inside, and he knows he's right where God wants him to be. And as a result of his obedience, the gospel will permeate the Roman guard until today, Rome is like the epicenter of the Christian faith. In fact, it was right here in this prison that Paul wrote the book of Ephesians that we're studying right now. He wrote all the prison epistles here. Philippians, Colossians. He also wrote the book of Philemon. Because he's using his jail time wisely, he knew that God was in control. How well are you using your prayer time? Let me give you four ways that you can pray for me in light of Paul's asking. Number one, you can join my intercessor prayer team. If you'd like to be a part, I have about 100 intercessors <clears throat> who pray for me regularly. Some pray for me daily. They live all over the world, and they're praying for me. They're praying for this church. They're praying for our community. Second, pray that I may know him better. And in knowing him better, that I'll be able to know where he's already working and participate in his kingdom business, I want to be at God's party. Third, would you pray for me to have wisdom to lead you and wisdom as to how we can do a better job equipping you for the work of the ministry and then finally pray for me the prayer of paul pray that i will have greater boldness in proclaiming the good news verse 21 tachycus the dear brother and faithful servant in the lord will tell you everything so that you may know how i am and what i am doing i am sending him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are and that he may encourage you. So here's Paul in prison, sending uh, Tychicus to the Ephesus in order to encourage them. You would think Paul would be the one needing encouragement, but Paul knew there was a great persecution happening against the church, and from prison he would be the, the encourager. And then in verse 23, Paul does what I love to do at the end of our church services, he prays a blessing over them when he says, Peace to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. So I conclude the book of Ephesians by challenging you to prayer. Prayer is the battle. The armor is our equipment for going into battle. I challenge you to prayer for the purpose of connecting with God and for the purpose of participating in advancing his, in his kingdom by recognizing where God is working and join him there. I'm going to conclude by showing you the story of a man who someone prayed for earnestly. This is Danny's story. And God put him in the hearts of specific people to pray for him until he was set free to become a man of God, a living testimony that God is still alive and working in the hearts and lives of those who will trust him. He's one of many, but listen now to Danny's story.